I, you know, for a minute this morning when Ryan introduced me, I thought I'd been promoted above my pay grade, but uh, <laughs> I am excited to be able to bring a message this morning. We've got a lot of material to cover today, so we need to get right with it. But I suspect some of you have noticed if, um, if you've been participating in our 52 series, if you've been memorizing a verse every week, meditating on that as we present these scriptures that we think every Christian should really have a good grasp on, You've probably noticed that, well, you get a break this month, or you may look at it that way, because we've been focusing on just one verse for the whole Christmas season, Isaiah 9-6. However, those of us who've been presenting messages on this have also presented some other related scripture, which we think relates to, uh, to the Isaiah 9-6 message. So, and I've done that this morning. I've put another verse in your, in your bulletin that's not part of our direct text, but I think you'll see that it is related to it. So we hope you keep that memory thing going and keep the meditation process at at work. About 700 years before Christmas, Israel needed to hear this prophecy from Isaiah. This was a scary time in Israel. The first one-third of the book of Isaiah is about a warning from the building Assyrian Empire surrounding their nation, an empire that eventually captured Israel. And Isaiah had a lot of warnings there. He also had some hope. He talked about a coming Messiah. And as I look at Isaiah 9-6, this prophecy that we've been focusing on, I also have to remind myself of, of the Lord's words to Isaiah much later on in the book, the last one-third of the book, there's a place there in Isaiah chapter 55, verse, verse 9, where God told Isaiah, that, Remember, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And I need that reminder as I look at this verse, because there's a few confusing things in Isaiah 9-6. There's a little, what I call, tension in the text. If we don't look at it strictly from God's point of view, from his perspective. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would be known by a number of names. And the verse begins by saying that a child, a son, will be given to us. Let's look at that verse again. Let's put it on the screen. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the third week for this verse, and we want it today to look at one of the other names. And before I explain that, um, that tension that I see there, let's just pause for a minute and ask God to bless the reading of his word as we look at it this morning. Lord, I just thank you for how we can assemble here and and bring together all the elements of worship. I'm thankful for the music that we've heard this morning as we lift up praise to you. I'm thankful for the offerings that have been given, the prayers that have been offered. And now, Lord, we get to look at the word together. And I pray that it would go forth, that you would accomplish with it what you would, would, would accomplish. And we pray this in the name of the one who this verse is all about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the son to be born is given descriptive names here. Not that these are the only names that, that Jesus would be called by, but they kind of give us a, a little descriptive um, idea about what's coming. 
Ryan Wickstrom has already spoken about one of the names, and so last week Pastor Jimmy took another one, Mighty God. This morning we want to look at Everlasting Father. Now here's some of the, the confusion or the tension that I have when I first read this. We know he's a son, and here it says he's also a father. Now we believe in a, a our doctrine tells us about the Trinity, the triune nature of God. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet Isaiah speaks of God the, the Son and God the Father in the same verse. It's kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around that sometimes. The other thing that's difficult, I think, for us humans to comprehend is this everlasting, everlasting Father, perpetuity, forever, just never ends. Yet Jimmy told us last week that um, at creation, from John 1 and from Genesis that Jesus was there when the world was spoken into creation. He was there at the beginning. He will be there forever. I asked Tyson if, if the band would present that tune this morning, that Chris Tomlin song, Forever. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is with us. Forever. Kind of hard thing to grasp. Well, you know, in Old Testament times, kings were sometimes referred to as fathers. The way we you know, talk about George Washington being the father of our nation, that title had to do with um, picturing a king who would protect his people. The problem was that some kings were good, some kings were bad. What was needed was a perpetually good father. So how do we think of Isaiah's prophecy pointing to Jesus as both a son and a father? How do we resolve this Trinity thing in, in our mind here? Well, here's what we can do, or at least this is what worked for me. We can go to the New Testament. This prophecy has now been fulfilled. Jesus came at Christmas. We have the advantage of hindsight. So what did Isaiah see that would have him refer to Jesus as an everlasting father? What did Jesus say about being a father. I think this is another way to look at Christmas. Rather than just a babe in a manger, let's turn our attention to Jesus as an everlasting father. What I discovered in one place where Jesus talked about a father literally blew me away. Jesus gave a story, a parable, if you will, about a father. And doesn't take too much stretch to see the everlasting part of it. A father is a father forever. This is a story, a parable, unlike any story in Jewish literature. The implications of this story uh, for the Jewish audience, the Pharisees and the scribes that were told were the recipients of it, would have been mind-boggling and radical. It's a parable you all know, <clears throat> and you've heard it before. We've labeled it the parable of the prodigal son. I think maybe it's misnamed. A better title would be the parable of the compassionate father, the loving father. It's usually presented, though, from the perspective of this wayward younger son who, 
who uh, rebels and, and goes off in wild living and, and then later repents and comes home. And there's also mention of uh, the older brother in the story. But this morning we want to look at it from the perspective of the father. And this incredible teaching is told to us in Luke chapter 15, the same gospel that presents us the Christmas story in such detail. So let's look at it through the lens of the Father and explore some fatherly principles that I think Jesus himself demonstrated as our Savior. It's a bit radical. Uh, at least it's different from a Jewish cultural standpoint. And the first point that I noted in, or that came to me when I read this story was that a father may have to allow his children to experience things he knows will not be in their best interest. Jesus is telling a parable about lost things. He started by talking about lost sheep. He talked about lost coins. And then he comes to verse 11 in chapter 15. And he says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So Jesus starts the story with a culturally shocking thing. The younger son asked for his share of the estate before his father died. Now that's not totally unheard of, but it's certainly not the norm. And what you need to know in this inheritance system of wealth, that kind of request would not be made. What the younger son was in effect saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's a very harsh request, and he kind of reveals his rebellious nature by saying that. In this culture, on the father's death, the older son would receive two-thirds of the estate. The younger son, one-third. And the father is described here as an estate owner, probably very wealthy, probably a well-respected man in the village. But the younger son wanted his share now. Note those words, I want my share. Scribes and the Pharisees would have been shocked by this story. How, how could Jesus portray such a thing? What the, uh, <clears throat> it's a picture of sin is what it is that Jesus wanted to convey probably for the scribes and Pharisees' benefit. Sin is more than just breaking rules. It's breaking relationships. Now, what the father did is also shocking. Legally, he could have harshly disciplined his son. In fact, he could legally disown him. According to the law, Deuteronomy 21, such a son could be taken before the elders at the gate of the village for judging. The religious leaders could judge him. He could have even been accused of, he could have been stoned to death. But what, the, what did the father do? He grants him his request. He gives him one-third of the estate. Not only the possession of it, but the right to dispose of it, the right of disposition. And we'll see that is what the son does. You know, we're told... In Psalm 106.15, that sometimes God gives his children what they ask for, even though it's not in their best interest. 
Psalm 106, 15, so he gave them what they asked for, but he sent a plague along with it. Some translations say he sent a wasting disease among them. Sometimes children just have to learn the hard way. And sometimes God has to let us do it our way until we finally get the message. Now, have you thought about this? Where's the older son in this? Why hasn't he said something? I think his silence tells us something. Because you see, in this culture, the older son would have a a, a job to do in managing the estate. And one of the main jobs would be to resolve family conflicts. He certainly should refuse his part of the estate at this time. Did he? We don't know. Where is he? I think his silence tells us something about his relationship with his father and his brother, and we'll see that a little later on. Now, the phrase, he packed all his belongings, probably means all the the livestock, the, the buildings, the land value. He converted everything to cash because he... He left, left town with the, with the value. Uh, and that's significant because it would have an impact on the entire family. I remember when my father, when I had to place him in a nursing home, my mother had already passed away. And as a power of attorney, I had to convert all my father's assets to cash. I had to sell his house. I had to auction off his things because I had tremendous bills coming from the nursing home. So I got rid of everything and and converted it to cash. I think that's what the son did because he, it says a few days later, he left town with the the value. You notice some sense of urgency in the way that's written? Uh, He got a few days later, he's gone. There would be a sense of urgency. You know why? Because he's broken the village rules. He would be the object of scorn and ridicule in the village. I've had the opportunity to witness ministry in many Bush, Alaska villages, villages that are way off the road system, most of them Alaskan native. And I can tell you, villages have rules. And they know everything that's going on. And you don't violate those. This son has violated those rules. Uh, those rules, some have suggested that he might even be in danger for sticking around. And so he got out of town. The Bible says he went to a distant land. That's an idiom. It means a Gentile country. He's violated the Hebrew social rules, so he best leave. And it shouldn't surprise us that he left. But it probably means he, he went to a place where he didn't know anybody or had no friends. And there the Bible says he squandered his wealth with wild living. At the beginning of this chapter, as I mentioned, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones listening to this parable. They would identify with the Father here. To think that a father would let his son do this is a very shameful thing. I'm sure that's what the Pharisees were thinking. What kind of a father would give his son this kind of freedom of choice. What kind of a story are you telling, Jesus? What kind of a father do we have in Jesus who would allow us to choose not to follow him, to allow us to make some of the choices that we make? 
And that brings me to my second bullet statement here. And I know it's kind of trite sounding, but it's true. Fathers have to have tough love. Verse 14. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So not only does the prodigal not have any friends in this Gentile country, now he doesn't have any money. So you have to say, well, why doesn't he just go home? I mean, things are better there. Well, I'll tell you what, going home would be a tough decision for him to make. He could expect several things if he returned to his village. He could expect the scorn and ridicule of the people in the village. He could expect the scorn of his older brother. I mean, can't you just hear it? Hey, don't come back here and live off of my share of the state after you've blown yours. And he could expect rejection by the father. You see, technically, his father could have invoked a ceremony declaring his son legally dead. Now a famine occurs, making things much worse for him. I mean, he's literally starving to death. Verse 15 used some interesting words. He said he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. In the Greek, this means he literally joined himself to somebody. He found somebody he thought could help him, and he attached himself to him. He wouldn't let him go. Apparently, this Gentile, though, was not all that keen on helping this loser of a foreigner because he gave him a job that any respectful Jew would turn down. Any Jewish lad would not take feeding pigs. Food was scarce. He ended up eating pods, probably carob pods. It's a a real bitter-tasting food. The sun is at the bottom. His father allowed him to get there. We call that tough love. As a parent, be very difficult to see our child go through this. Now, I don't know if his father knew everything that was happening to him, but knowing the character of his son, he probably expected something like this was coming. And that brings me to the third point, though. A father receives the repentant. Key verses, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired hands, hired servants, have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Verse 17 is a key verse. It represents a turning point. Theologically, it's been a very interesting verse for me. I used to think it represented the moment of repentance. Now I have a little different idea, but it's still a key verse. He came to his senses. I used to think this was the moment, the complete moment of repentance because the son turns around. I mean, he could have still been running away from his father, maybe look back over his shoulder and say, gee, Dad, I'm sorry for all the trouble I've caused you. But that would just be feeling sorry for the consequences of your sin. 
not the sin itself. He actually turned around, and that's the first step in repentance. But now I believe it was only the first step. He's hungry, has a memory of his father. Even his hired hands, his hired servants have enough to eat, he remembered. And, and this is key. Note that, his hired servants. There's several categories of servants in Israel at this time. There were bond servants. Um, they were complete servants. They have no rights of their own. They're totally sold out to their master. Paul called himself a bond servant to Jesus Christ in Romans 1.1. Then there were regular servants. They had a little bit more freedom. Some of them probably went home at night. But like bond servants, they were well cared for, well provided for. And then there were hired hands, hired servants. These are people, we'd probably call them migrant workers. They hang around waiting for a job to open up. They get paid by the hour. They have no benefits. What he's saying is that even the hired hands have it better then I've got it. So he rehearses a three-point speech that he's going to give to his father. He's going to turn around. He's going to go home. He's going to give a three-point speech. First point, he's going to say, I have sinned. Hey, that's good. That's confession. Then he says, I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. All right, that's accepting the consequences of your sin. And then take me on as a hired servant. The lowest form of servant. Key words. Take me on as a hired servant. And this is the point I had always missed in this parable. Repentance is not complete here yet. It's only partial. It's offered on the grounds of self-righteousness by offering to repay the debt with his own effort. I will work to get my way back in the family. Now what he was doing was would meet the Pharisees' concept of repentance. In Jewish thought, reparations needed to precede repentance, something you did by working to earn God's favor. So this is the three-point speech he has rehearsed, and he's ready to go face his father. Now what the father does is incredible. This would be a whole new teaching about who the Father is. And Jesus is not playing by rabbinical rules. You know, one time I was at a seminar in the Northwest, and one of the speakers was a man named Dr. Earl Palmer, who happened to be the pastor of a very large church in Seattle. Dr. Palmer was an art lover, and he told the story about the prodigal son. He said uh, when Russia opened up to tourism, he decided to take his family on a trip through Russia. And one of the things he wanted to do was go to St. Petersburg where he could see the painting, the Rembrandt painting of the prodigal son. Do we have that on the screen or can we get it up there? I don't know how well it will show up. But he said they arranged for a tour of the Hermitage where this painting was, uh, was shown and um, they, they, hired, they gave him a tour guide who was a young woman who spoke English very well. Her main job there at the gallery was to take American college students through the gallery. He said, we came to this painting, and she made this comment about it. 
she said, I want you to notice the expression on the blind father's face. And Dr. Palmer said, I couldn't let her get away with that. Later on in private, I, I said to her, the father in the prodigal son's story was not blind. As a matter of fact, he saw his son coming from afar. He probably had very good eyesight. And she said, oh, I didn't know. Nobody ever corrected me. Now, Earl Palmer was telling that story to make another point. He was trying to show the biblical illiteracy of our American college students. Nobody knew the parable well enough to correct her. But I, I bring it out to, to show the, that always hopeful, never give up attitude of the father. He was looking for his son. According to Jewish written law, he should not have been looking for his son. He should have had him declared dead. And the father acts in a very culturally shameful way. It says he's filled with compassion. I invite you to do a word study of that sometime in the New Testament, the word compassion. Sometimes it's translated took pity on. Every time I've found that word, it always is associated with action, with doing something, not just feeling sorry for, taking action, doing something. He ran to his son, culturally not acceptable. Wealthy estate owners did not run. For one thing, they wore long robes, and to run, you had to pull your robe up and expose your ankles, and that was shameful. He didn't do that. He embraced and kissed his son. What has his son been doing? Feeding pigs. Not only is he ceremonially unclean, he's probably physically dirty. I think Rembrandt showed him dirty. Whereas the father should have remained aloof and judicial, he showed a different set of emotions. He's showing us a different kind of father, isn't he? The kind of father he is. I don't know if the villagers witnessed this or not. They probably did. If they didn't, they would have soon heard about it anyway. You know how villages work. But the actions of the father are pretty significant and shocking. The father has welcomed him back into the family. Now, here's something for you to think about. If you don't get anything else out of this message, remember this point. The punishment that the village elders and religious leaders could have given to the son, they must now give to the father. Now think of the parallel there. The punishment that you and I deserve, we impute to Jesus Christ. Now, that's a father. Fourth point, a father understands true repentance. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, kill the calf which we've been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. The son begins his three-point speech, but he only gets to the first two points before his dad interrupts him. He says, Father, I've sinned, point one. 
And point two, I'm no longer worthy, expression of humility. But the father does not let him get to the point about take me on as your hired servant. You don't work to get your way back in the family. I offer it to you by grace. I believe in our modern terminology, and I know not everybody agrees with me on this, but I believe the prodigal son was a believer. Oh, yeah, he strayed. He backslid. But the father still calls him a son. This son of mine. When we're adopted as children of God, Romans 8.15 says, when he adopted you as his own children, I don't see any way in the Scripture to become unadopted. We're saved. When we're saved, we're saved forever. I had Tyson play that song this morning. Forever, God is faithful. That's the everlasting Father part of it. I think Jesus is sort of challenging the concept of Jewish people disowning their sons. We're a son forever. He's a father forever, an everlasting father. The father-son relationship has been restored due to the grace and mercy of the father. Now, we can hurt that relationship. It's restored through repentance and grace. What a father. For a final point, I think we need to mention the older son. Because he gives us some more insights about a father. It's kind of a long passage, but we need to read it. The point is this. A father bypasses bitterness. Beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. The word older is used here in the original language is the Greek word which means can also be translated ambassador. It implies more than just being chronologically older, although he was the older brother. It's the same word sometimes used to describe the elders in the village. The older son is coming in from having authority out in the field, supervising others. Traditionally, the older son would have a role to play in any kind of a feast his father gave. He should be there welcoming the guest. It should have been a joyous occasion. But instead, the Bible says he became angry. Why anger? Well, according to the teaching he would be familiar with, there must be repayment for the disgrace brought to the family. Entrance back into the home 
would only be after you had performed your way back to repentance. But the Father has restored the brother before there was performance. Jesus is teaching a different theology. The Son is angry because his whole model of repentance has been destroyed, and now the Father has brought more shame on the family by not obeying the rules. So once again, for the second time in a day, a father goes out to meet a son. The son's reaction is insulting. You know, some translations says, look, Dad, look what I've done for you. It shows he's, he's missed the essence of being in the family. He views his role as a servant, not as a son. We actually have some other clues to his character here. One verse says uh, he accuses his brother of, of spending his money on prostitutes. Where did he get that? We're not told that. Maybe it's true, but we don't know. The point is the father bypasses all the bitterness. He assures him he's part of the family. All I have is yours. He opens his heart in front of the whole village. You belong to me, not because of your good performance, but because you're my son. Nothing you could do could earn your way back into the family. I wonder if the Pharisees got the point. Sometimes I think a self-righteous Pharisee would rather see a sinner destroyed than restored. I wonder if the Jews in Isaiah's time got the point. In this parable, the lawbreaker is represented by the younger son. And the teaching was, come home. Come on home. It's safe. My grace is greater than any sin you've committed. The law keeper is represented by the older son, and the message is, come near. Come near and recognize that I love you, not for what you've done. Repentance occurs when you realize that you're not good enough to make it on your own. That moment when we recognize that not even being a hired hand is good enough. Aren't you glad we had an everlasting Father who came at Christmas? I don't know about you, but this story kind of changes the way I think about Christmas. I'm not looking so much as a babe in a manger. I'm looking at Jesus as my Father. A Father who will be there perpetually for me, everlasting. Father who extends love and forgiveness that I don't deserve. Father who will rejoice when I repent of wrongdoing. Do you have a Heavenly Father like that? Well, you can. You do it by receiving his son. This is where the tension resolves itself. The father cared about us so much that he sent his son to die in payment for our sin. And our sin was something that we could not overcome by working our way to get into his family. I said earlier you had a memory verse break this month, but here's a good chance to remember another one that summarizes the message today. I've placed it in the bulletin. 1 John 2.23, anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also.